from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. Welcome to Cars That Matter. It's great to be back in the studio for another episode, especially with a special guest who's not just a close friend, but someone known to just about everybody crazy enough to be deep into the world of Italian cars, especially those whose names end in I. My guest is Gary Bobolif, known for his award-winning restorations of Lamborghinis, Ferraris, and Maseratis, and equally respected as a seasoned judge at the world's most important Concours events. Monterey, Amelia Island, you name it, Gary is there. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Don't call me sir, call me Bob, because I think that's how we met about 20 years ago. Actually, you and I met back in 2002 when I, I came to Bobolift Motor Cars and, and had this naive idea that I'd actually commission the restoration of a classic Lamborghini. Gary, you tried to talk me out of it. I did it anyway. And a year later, we swept up awards in Monterey with that car. And ever since, the trophy cabinets just kind of expanded exponentially. But it all started with you. Speaking of trophies, last weekend, I had the honor of working as a judge at the Las Vegas Concorde d'Elegance at Wynn Las Vegas. Man, what an event. Founder and chairman Stuart Sobek had asked you to be the chief judge. And basically, that's like herding cats. How many cars did you have on the field? We had approximately 220 cars, of which approximately 122 were judged. The balance were for display. That's a huge number of cars. And, and you had a room full of judges. There must have been 60 of us in there. Some serious judges with a lot of credentials. And, and you had the colossal responsibility of, of positioning the Win Concours as the premier Concours event in the country. What do you see as the opportunity for the Win? Well, it's interesting because the dialogue with Sue Sobek, who is chairman of the Las Vegas Concord, this is the third year that the concourse went on. It went on the first year at the country club. Second year was at the ballpark, which we had last year, which was an interesting event. Brand new Las Vegas ballpark. We had it inside the ballpark, all on the green grass of the ballpark, and then became partnership with Wynn in this event about approximately less than six months ago. And Wynn told him very clearly at that time, you know, the Wynn management team, they said, look, we give it three years. We want the Wynn Concorde to be the premier Concorde worldwide, which will surpass Villa d'Est. They have hopes of surpassing Pebble Beach, all the other Concorde that have come up. That's how this whole thing started. Wynn was very, very willing to contribute whatever it would take, advertising, promotion of this event, get the best of the best when it comes to judges, when it comes to really putting out an incredible show. They limited the spectators this year on purpose to 3,000 on the field. There were exhibitors, of course, and exhibitors' families and associates that were there. But as far as paid spectators were, were cut off at 3,000, they wanted a soft start on this whole deal. And I think they really, really did a great, great job in doing this. The promotion also was quite sensational. The electronic billboard on the outside of the hotel for weeks prior to the Concours, you know, would go ahead and announce the Concours and display cars that were on that electronic billboard. Wynn did a great promotion on this. 
Well, well, there's no question. It's certainly the premier property in Las Vegas. And as regards a, a setting and a venue for a Concours event, I mean, look, let's face it, you and I have been around around the world, all of them. You know, Villa Desta is a pretty remarkable place. Certainly the Pebble Beach uh, golf course is quite something. But let's face it, too, you're elbow to elbow with other spectators and other cars. And there are very few places that have such an open and really magisterial landscape as the wind. These cars had room to breathe. You could actually walk. You could enjoy the landscape. There's a beautiful meandering green expanses of grass. I mean, it, it was it was a pretty idyllic place to show a car. And I can well imagine this becoming the ideal venue for a premier show going forward. Yeah, as you'd mentioned, you know, you're, you're talking about assets and advantages. Uh, the golf course is, I found out, a 127-acre piece of property. The other thing is, as far as Las Vegas is concerned, just entry and exit when it comes to highways, airports, that sort of thing is a piece of cake compared to other locations. Villa d'Est, you fly into Milano and it's not that far from there, but still it's a little bit of a distance. Pebble Beach, you have either San Francisco or if you're fortunate enough to fly into Monterey, which makes it better, but you have a problem when it comes to lodging and hotel rooms. It's just absurd in Monterey, whereas here in Las Vegas, you have your choice of thousands of hotel rooms. If you don't prefer to stay at the wind, there's so many other places. So when it comes to the logistics, when it comes to the restaurants for car guys, it's a Mecca. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. I think anybody who's spent some time, especially over the last decade or so up in Monterey, would have to acknowledge that uh, just the challenge of getting from point A to point B makes you want to pull the covers over your head and not even leave your overpriced hotel room because it's impossible to get around. I have to say, I felt free as a bird. I guess a Concorde d'Elegance, though, wouldn't be that without judges, a bunch of old guys in straw hats walking around, taking points off cars because something a little bit wrong here or there. That's really what it's all about. And exhibitors who want to get their car on the grass appreciate the fact that there are judges who actually know the difference between this nut and that bolt. Can you explain to our listeners how that actually works? Well... The preferred methodology of getting judges involved are typically people that are in the business. In other words, people that are exposed to these cars day in, day out. That's truly where your knowledge base is. You know, I truly respect the hobbyist enthusiast that has maybe one car in his garage and he tinkers with it every weekend and he does nothing but dream about his car, which is fantastic. But he doesn't have the skills and the knowledge base developed as a fellow that works on these cars for many, many years. Because of that knowledge base, many of these older cars that we're dealing with, in some cases, there were shop manuals, workshop manuals, parts manuals, but specifically, my background is Italian cars, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Maserati, that sort of thing. And many of the earlier Ferraris and, and as well as Lamborghinis, no shop manuals, no parts books, nothing you would have to know because your senior would teach you these things. You get, you buy, let's say back in the day, a Ferrari Lusso. They didn't have an owner's book. So without an owner's book, what are these switches? What do they do? What are my tire pressures? Well, I don't know. So this is, has to be passed down from seniors to juniors to get that kind of information. Same thing with parts books. You need a part. You know, oftentimes in the early years, I as a young man back then, back in the 60s and 70s, I would walk up to the parts counter and say, Hey, I need a bearing and here's the application. Here's where the bearing goes. 
Well, that bearing really didn't have a part number on it or anything. It was all strictly by description. Now, I could do that back then, but imagine today with the new cars by saying, well, I need a bearing that goes inside a who knows where and by application. They're going to say, hey, buddy, we need a part number. You know, the world has changed. It's all computerized. But back then, everything was manual. So these people that are working within the trade and the industry, they're the judges that we want because, like you said earlier, they're the ones that know, oh, wait a minute, this nut is wrong or this took a special bolt of some sort and this doesn't look correct to me. You know, wait a minute, what do you think, Joe? He'll say to his accomplice, the other judge and his team, they both concur or all three concur saying, no, no, I remember that took this specialized piece of hardware. Something that the owner of the car may or may not recognize as being correct or incorrect, but these judges, they know. That's why you try and get the best judges possible to judge what they are familiar with. Don't put a Corvette judge to judge Mercedes. That does not work. Oh, there's no question. All these are different types of animals. You talk about those judging criteria, and, and people talk about the first, say, you know, 95 points costing XYZ. What does the remaining 5% entail? What does it really take to be a show winner? It's almost like a double standard, so to speak. There are two schools of thought. When it comes to restoration and showing these cars, obviously the purist would want to see the car exactly the way it was when it came out of the factory. Again, with my background being Italian, so that's what I'm primarily speaking about today. You know, I, my knowledge base and skills when it comes to German cars or other types of cars, British cars, you know, really is quite thin. But on Italian cars, when these cars came out of the factory, the bodies were wavy as can be. In some cases, like earlier Lamborghinis, looked like they almost got painted with a brush. I mean, the, the coachwork was terrible. You know, the fit and the finish was terrible. People don't remember this when the cars were brand new. If you had a car that was in a cocoon or a bubble and bring it out so many years later, they would be appalled and shocked as to how terrible the coachwork was on these cars. Today, we expect perfection. You know, the judges are saying, oh, the door gap is, it's off by a sixteenth of an inch or whatever it should not be. Well, they were off by lots of millimeters previously in, a, in their early lifetime. But today, everything is supposed to be perfect paint, perfect door gaps, perfect stitching, perfect everything. Whereas back in the day when they were new, that didn't exist. Regardless, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Maserati, you know, I mean, there were some examples where the cars were quite nice and quite good, but the majority really were substandard compared to today of what we expect. So then that begs the question, how is the car to be shown in its original purest form as it was when it was new with horrible paint, horrible gaps, wavy coach work everywhere, parts that didn't fit, you know, headlamps that don't fit headlamp openings, tail lamps that don't fit tail lamp openings. That was reality. Well, if you show that, you're going to have your car that's the laughing stock of the Concorde. On the other hand, everybody expects perfection. So is perfection truly the proper way to restore a car? That's the judge's biggest dilemma. Gary, do you help your customers sort of walk that fine line and decide where to go? In other words, a guy comes and says, you know, Gary, I know this car used to be gray, but I think I want to paint it pink. Do you try to talk them off a ledge? Do you say, well, we don't want metal flake on this. We don't want clear coat. We want an original type of finish. We don't want to chrome this. We want to CAD plate that. How do you help them along that process? Well, I, I ran into that exact scenario less than a week ago. I had a client that we restored a car for him. The car is essentially 99% finished. He saw it for the first time. And in the very beginning of the restoration, 
you know, we talked about leather interior. He had no issues with it. Then when he saw the car, he said, well, wait a minute, it's all leather inside. And I'm saying, I'm aware. And he said, but wasn't it vinyl originally? I said, that's true. Vinyl dash, vinyl console, vinyl seats, vinyl door panels, shiny nylon carpet. It really looked poor and very, very uncomfortable sitting on vinyl as compared to leather. And he just said, you know what? I, I really can't handle the fact that it's leather now. And I'm saying, well, leather was offered in the period. As a matter of fact, the car built just after you, the next car in the sequence did in fact have leather in it. So it's not inappropriate to have leather, but he said, no, no, no. I want you to redo the whole interior and put it back to vinyl. And I'm saying, okay, I think it'll be a big mistake, but if you insist. So the conversation went deeper and further into, well, what is original and what is not original and how would it be judged correctly? Maybe not just for today, but moving into tomorrow, into the future, five, 10, 20 years from now, how will judges look at this interior by saying, oh, it's done correctly. It's vinyl. Even so it's uncomfortable as opposed to Gee, leather is comfortable, good-looking, aromatic, soft to the touch, but wrong. That's that's really interesting. What does it take to actually embark on one of these restorations? I mean, having gone through it myself, I guess I could answer part of that question, but you've done hundreds of them, maybe even thousands. The guy says, uh, boy, I really love this car. You think you can find me one? What's it going to take to do it? At least from my exposure to the restorations, it used to be approximately you know, 18, 19 months, something like that, you could do the restorations. At the same time now, once a car is acquired and the customer says, I'd like to restore it, that's all well and fine. We're running into so many more situations today being 2022 20, than we did 20 years ago. For example, many of the cars that we get in now, the amount of rust is much more extensive in the cars today than it was 20 some odd years ago, just because of age, the condition that the car has been stored in, humidity, maybe uh, owner living right by the ocean. You know, you have salt in the air constantly. So this 18, 20 month restoration period of time and what should have been done on a restoration now is completely magnified and blown out of proportion. You have to rebuild half the bodies, half the chassis, all that. That's extra time. That's extra money. And, you know, these 18, 20 month restorations now could lapse into 24, 36 month restorations because of all the excess amount of work. And not to say that now, 20, 30 years later, you used to pick up the phone and say to your supplier, hey, I need this, I need that. Well, these are made out of a material called unobtainium. You know, you you need to sit there and fabricate each and every piece that you need nowadays because they're just no longer available. The factory doesn't supply parts. Cars are too old. So everything has to be custom made. That, again, is an additional step, an additional complication, and an additional cost, of course. And as you get more and more engaged with some of these older and older and more decrepit cars, have you found that basically cars that were restored at one time are coming back to be re-restored all over again? A lot of that is predicated upon if they were restored, the owners use it, and now he's put on many miles and also maybe living into areas of either the country or the world where the weather is not kind to the cars and deteriorates the cars. So things like that would happen. The other thing is going back, marching back 30 some odd years ago, the choice of uh, paint materials applied to the car at that time was nitrous cellulose lacquer, which is a fabulous product going back 40 years ago. But by today's standard, it doesn't have the longevity. So now you have cars that are starting to check, they're cracking in the paint, 
you have lack of adhesion, not because preparations were wrong. It's just because the paint doesn't have the durability. So based on that, yes, many of these cars are starting to come back for re-restoration. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with my guest, Gary Bobolif. Solar from Kurtco Media. NASC located the Athon two days ago. However, we have not established contact. What was that? I do not detect any abnormalities. The lights are getting brighter. Is the electricity overloading? Everything is nominal. What are the odds of survival for the Athon crew? We won't speculate on those circumstances. I'm sure you can understand. Solar, a fully immersive sonic adventure with revolutionary sound from Dolby Atmos. Incoming message from Jamal. Accept, accept. Rich, it's coming into the airlock. Get away from the airlock. Hurry. Starring Academy Award winner Helen Hunt. If we deviate from the plan even by an hour, we lose everything. Tony Award winner Alan Cumming. I'm simply not willing to risk the lives of any crew members for the sake of an experiment. Stephanie Beatrice. I'm going to save you, Jamal. And Jonathan Bangs. One problem at a time, Ren. Solar. Shadows are darker this close to the sun. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to our chat with Gary from Bobolif Motor Car Company. Gary, do you put an ad on Craigslist that says wanted mild steel Ferrari exhaust fabricator or, uh, you know, Weber carb rebuild expert? Where do you find the people to do this work? It's increasingly more and more difficult to, to find old timers because it's the old guys that know it. You know, the, the young kids of today typically, and there are rare exceptions, but most of them do not want to work as an apprentice. They just don't want to work for years for low pay and learn the skills and learn the trades. And it's not just automotive. I mean, it, it's all, all trades are like that. Electricians, woodworking, finished carpentry, all these sorts of things. The trades are really losing all their people as people retire people pass away, you know, all the really good superior craftsmen, they're, they're all just, they're leaving this planet forever. So finding new kids is very difficult. The best you can hope is what we're starting to do is get retirees to work in the shop that still have the skill levels. They're lower than when they were younger, but at least they still have the skill levels. And even if the power, brain power retention is at 50%, they still know worlds more than the young kids that are taught for years. Well, that's a sobering realization, especially because uh, somebody's got to balance those 640 DCOEs when all the old guys are gone. It'll be interesting to see what happens down the road. Gary, you're the acknowledged Mira expert. I know that you're a pretty modest guy, but the fact is you've probably restored more Lamborghini Miras than anybody on the planet. Tell us about that whole process. What got you into the Miras? Two answers to your question. Number one, I used to keep track of all the Mira restorations that we've done. I started to stop that three or four years ago. We were up to 144 mirror complete ground up restorations. Where we are now, I don't, I don't know, 160, 170 possibly. I've not recorded that in the past few years. The beginnings of working on Lamborghinis actually is, is kind of interesting because going back in the period when 350 GTs, 400s, Miras, that whole lineup of Lamborghinis from 66 onwards started being produced everybody flipped over the cars because their engineering was just so incredible. The performance was so incredible. And then they found out six months or a year later, women, this car is a complete leaker. You know, what do I do? I mean, I've got oil leaks everywhere. 
it's not running as well. It's spitting, it's coughing. It, I, it won't start. I mean, you know, there's all these problems that develop as with any high performance car of the era. The problem was there was nobody there that was willing to say, oh, I'll take care of your car for various reasons. Number one, back in the day, Lamborghini was considered to be the black sheep of the Italian car manufacturers. Nobody wanted to be associated with Lamborghini except just a few purists and enthusiasts. Secondly, parts were virtually not available. Thirdly, when it came to any technical information, that was just completely non-existent. So your average Ferrari mechanic, their client would say, well, I've got a Lamborghini work on it. They were completely lost because the thought process of building a Lamborghini is vastly different than Ferrari engineering wise and just the way the cars are constructed. So in the day, there were all these frustrated people that were selling their cars for cheap just to dump them because they said, we can't get parts. We can't work on them. And I sheepishly raised my hand and said, well, I'll work on them. And they said, okay, well, let's give you a shot. And just through sheer experience of understanding and knowing the cars, interchanges between Lamborghini and other cars, there could be interchanges between Fiat, between Alpha, between Ferrari parts, and some of the other parts started to get a clear understanding as to what Lamborghinis were all about and what the factory is producing. So as time went on, I worked on more and more Lambos and everybody shied away from them. And essentially the reputation became, well, if you want your car to run, you better take it to Gary. <laughs> Certainly some gratifying restorations. And really now with the value of the cars uh, being what they are, it's a whole different kettle of fish than when they were just old used cars back in the 80s. Well, enough about Lamborghinis. Obviously, that's a subject near and dear to you. But you also have a flag firmly planted in the Ferrari camp. I know you judge those cars every single year at a number of Concours events around the world. Do you have a favorite Ferrari among all of those? And what's the Ferrari you most restored? Whether it's Ferrari, Lamborghini, or regardless of the mark, I've always sort of taken the posture that there's different cars for different purposes. There's a car for GT car for traveling. There's a car for fun and sports on back roads. There's a car for show. There's a car for competition. I've never found one car that would sort of go ahead and package up all four of those categorical areas. So there's, there's different cars that do different things. Many of the cars that I absolutely am passionate and love about are probably from the era when I was a young man just started working on these cars and my eyes were just wider open than they are now. But I mean, truly enthusiastic, not that I'm not now, but back then there was such a wealth of learning curves and information. For example, I had a very good friend of mine who bought a, the Le Mans winning 250 LM and drove it on the street. And I remember going out with my friend, driving the car and we put many miles on that car. And that to me was just incredible. The whining, the noises, the sounds, the performance, just the way the shift gate the, the, with the sliding gate that was in there, you could only go sequentially one gear up, one gear down at a time. It wouldn't allow you to go from fifth to third. You'd have to go into fourth to select third, you know, all these nuances. And that's a car that always stands near and dear to me. 275 GTBs I've always loved. I've had several of them in the past that I personally owned for many years. As a touring car, I just absolutely love those cars. The later, more contemporary cars, I know people don't care for them, but I always regarded 348s, particularly the Spiders, as being just wonderful everyday driving cars. They don't do anything particularly 
well, but everything they do, they do well enough. I mean, there's enough power, enough braking, enough handling for just what I can consider to be, if you want to drive a Ferrari every day, they're probably one of the ultimate because that's the last car Ferrari built without real computers. You know, everything is analog, everything is manual, and that makes a car very reliable. And that's funny you'd mention the 348 because that's the one that they couldn't, quote, give away back when it was new. I know that we had all kinds of problems in the economy, and those things were actually, you know, stacking up on the docks in America. They had trouble selling them. And I imagine that's a great entry-level point then for somebody that wants to get into the Ferrari club, so to speak. Well, the earlier cars, when they came out in 89, really did, in fact, have gearbox problems, shifting problems, quality control problems, interior vinyl that was not adhering and sticking to door panels and all sorts of things. But that was rectified by the time they came out with the Spiders in 94, 95. Really, they, there were a tremendous amount of updates and refinements that went into the car. So they really went a long way at the factory to try and correct some of the problematic areas, which is unusual because Ferrari typically doesn't care that much for their customers <laughs> after the fact. You know, you buy it, you own it. That's it. That's their attitude. But here they really went the extra mile in the 348, which is very nice to see. That's pretty funny. Gary, you work obviously on old cars and some newer, more recent models as well. But out of all of those across the board, when it comes to actually just driving, is there a particular Italian car that you find to be the most gratifying? There are, you know, because my driving habits and driving style is basically from my home to my work, back to my home. And every, every now and then from work to the airport, that's about it. I typically don't drive hundreds of miles in a car. I typically don't drive rallies. I typically don't go for long road trips cross country. So, you know, my driving style and habit is very different than others. But for an everyday car, I know my wife's car, she has a Maserati convertible, you know, a Gran Turismo convertible. She loves it. I have a, a Gran Turismo four-door Quattroport. I've had it for since new. I love Maseratis. I think they're the biggest bang for the buck. They're stylish. They're reasonably priced. Parts are not outrageous. And as long as you drive them consistently, the lubricants, oil filter, tires, brake pads, that's it. You know, uh, spark plugs, the rest of the car just runs and runs and runs. There are exceptions, but generally speaking, those are great cars. Is there one Italian car, though, that you'd really still like to get your hands on? Is there one project you'd like to undertake? Well, there's many. I mean, you know, I've not had the privilege, for example, of restoring something like, uh, although I maintain Competition 250 short wheelbases uh, and Ferraris and all that, which are madly in love with those cars, but I've not restored any of those. There's, you know, a 250 GTO. The only, the closest that I ever came to with a 250 GTO was the GTO test bed. And that was a little tiny car that Ferrari had developed in association with others called the ASA. Mm -hmm. And the ASA was the chassis and everything about the car was a scaled down version of a 250 GTO. That was the test bed platform that they used. And then they expanded it to make the 250 GTO. Amazing cars. They handled beautifully, but they were so tiny. I could barely, barely fit into them. I remember restoring one and owning one many years ago, and it was gorgeous, but hardly used it because of dimensional size on the interior. That is a beautiful little rarity, quite a jewel. And yes, you're a tall guy. I imagine it's tough to get inside of a car that small. Another one that's tough to get in, of course, is the Countach. And you've done your fair share of those, especially the early series. Those were a, a tough nut to crack when it comes to getting in and out. 
and I imagine to restore as well. Very complicated car, right? Well, complicated from the aspect of, you know, lack of parts, that sort of thing. When it comes to interior volumetric room, what we've been doing quite a bit of is we've had a number of customers that are very, very tall, not necessarily heavyweight, but just tall individuals. One that comes to mind recently, we just had a 6.0 Diablo that we just sold last week. We made in a custom seat, which mimicked and looked exactly like the passenger seat. If you looked into the car, you could never tell the difference. Yet it was so lowered and so thin and so widened onto there that he is over six foot six tall, that once he parked himself into the car, he had headroom to spare. And that was the joy of his life. We also did the same thing with the Countach he owned previously, built custom seats and, and made him fit into the seat and fit in the car. His dream was to be able to drive these cars, but could never achieve that dream because of his great stature. You know, providing a service like that to say, you know what, we're going to make you fit no matter what. And then he's happy. I mean, that that really, we've produced his lifelong dreams and fulfilled that dream, which gives me tremendous satisfaction. Oh, that's a, that's a great story. I mean, I, I've seen your shops and the number of projects you've got going on there, and I never cease to be amazed by the, the variety and sometimes the requests and the scope of some of those projects. I remember you did a really fascinating mirror restoration, Gary, but it wasn't even really a mirror. It was the prototype rolling chassis, wasn't it? That was a fabulous project. Love that. As I recall, when that showed up at the motor show in uh, 1960, Turin Motor Show, was that 1965 it showed up? Or early 66, maybe? 65. Yeah. Turin Auto Show. It was strictly just a chassis minus a body with a drivetrain installed, not hooked up, and not capable of running. But it was it was a mock-up. So basically, it was a Swiss cheese chassis that stamped steel with a transversely mounted V12 in the back and a seat and a steering wheel. You had the honor and the responsibility of actually bringing that back to life. Tell us about that project. I'm, I'm fascinated. Interesting. The car was found, I believe it was found in Cyprus, if I'm not mistaken. I remember flying over there, looking at the car and just absolutely couldn't believe my eyes because it was pictured in all the books, but it, the car had disappeared for so many years. And then the owner decided to sell. And then we had a buyer for the car here in the States. And then I was asked to perform the restoration, which I just absolutely happily accepted. I mean, that car was a real challenge. It had roots to being a future mirror, but there were so many differences and changes. Again, it was a concept. It was just a thought process before they ever came out with the body. And rumor has it, that at the time when this was shown in Turin, that the Lamborghini people went to Bertone, who was on the opposite side of the show in Turin, and begged him to come and see this new creation of what ultimately would turn out to be a car and a production car. And Bertone would not give Lamborghini the time of day. And they went back and forth. And finally, it was almost as if Lamborghini dragged Bertone by his coattails to say, look, I need to show you this, please. And as soon as Bertone saw it, he absolutely flipped out. After that point, that's when the body got penned, the body got designed, the body got fabricated, and they really tried to fit the body to the chassis with lots of modifications. That chassis was just an amazing work of art. It's a real display piece. What a fascinating story, Gary. You say that it was actually never a running prototype. Uh, nothing ever was actually hooked up. How did you restore it then? To, did you do anything to uh, actually allow it to operate, or was it uh, essentially a static showpiece? Oh, no, strictly a static showpiece. It was never intended to operate. 
it had many, many interesting features in taking it apart where it took a while to try and understand what the engineers were doing. Case in point, a Lamborghini Mira has a aluminum shift box where your shifter resides in. With the shifter, then you have a uh, rod that goes back to the engine gearbox unit behind you to transmit the power of your shifting. Well, in this particular case, there were six hydraulic outlets which indicate that there was going to be some sort of thought process master plan where every single shift that you would do would go to some sort of a servo. So in other words, you'd have six pipes running to the back and you have six master and slaves that were in there. Every time you shift into first, you would activate that particular master and slave. It was obvious because otherwise there'd be no reason to put these hydraulic fittings in front of every shift point. So you look at things like that and say, wow, that's what the engineers were thinking because they couldn't quite figure out how are we going to make this thing shift? Well, hydraulically, no, that never came to fruition, but that was one of their initial concepts. The chassis had no electrical system. It did have driver's seat, steering wheel, steering column, had radiators with radiator fans. The radiators were lying flat rather than vertically, so it could have never cooled, but no radiator lines or hoses. The motor was installed into a rear sub-chassis that completely was removable. The motor itself was basically a complete prototype Mura motor, minus a few pieces here and there. There's no way it could have ever run, but they made up headers. They mocked the whole thing up to as a display piece where you look at it, you were just in awe. But at the same time, to get it to actually function and run, no, the fuel tank couldn't hold fuel. I mean, it was just, there's lots of things about it. It was, it was a styling exercise in mechanicals. What a fascinating project. And you were able to essentially bring it back to life. That's a, that's a great thing. Gary, you've had a fascinating career restoring these cars, judging these cars, owning and driving these cars. And obviously there's plenty of miles to go because owners and anyone who's fascinated by the legacy of these Italian automobiles is going to be relying on you and the few people like you to keep them running and to keep them in tip-top shape. It's good to know you're there. You're in San Diego, but you get around quite a bit. But I imagine we're going to call Bobolith Motorcars Mira Central from now on. <laughs> well, I have one last funny story to tell you. At the Las Vegas Concord, just, which just happened a few days ago last weekend, there was a gentleman that I met there who was one of the higher-ups in one of the large, large Lamborghini dealerships here in Southern California. So I went introduced, I introduced myself, and my name didn't mean anything. So I gave him a business card, but then he saw the logo on the card and he looked at it and said, oh my gosh, you're Gary Bobolev. You're a legend. And, you know, I just looked at it and said, no, I'm a relic, you know, because <laughs> that mean, legends mean you're really old. <laughs> well, I'm glad whatever you want, whatever you're called, I'm glad you're there to actually keep these things running. And I sure look forward to seeing you soon. I want to thank Gary Bobolif for joining our show today, Cars That Matter, for talking about the Wynn Concord Elegance, up-and-coming new Concord that's sure to set the show car world on its ear. Gary, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Gary Bobolif for joining me on Cars That Matter. If you'd like to learn more about what Gary and his team do, check out Bobolif.com, B-O-B-I-L-E-F-F. This episode was produced for Kirkco Media by Robert Ross and A.J. Mosley. Recording and editing by A.J. Mosley. I hope you'll join us again on the next episode of Cars That Matter.
Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.